1: going on everyone welcome to another episode of bro history at Henry Zamoda and Danny of Elgibar what's up brother how are you chilling man as per usual how about yourself I'm doing pretty good um I'm coming off of something I caught something this week I wasn't really sure what it was um uh, the big immediate C? what's that the big C it's- that's what I thought at first that I had COVID but all my tests ended up being negative so it may have not been that. It may have been a faulty test, but well, you know, my the flu
0: is still were... a thing, right? <laughs> what, what's that? The, the flu is still a thing, though.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah, you know, other other diseases have or viruses haven't left human existence. There's still the influenza. There's still other things that you can catch. So, I think that I caught the flu. Um, honestly, the reason why is because I was way sicker than what most people are saying. What the Omicron, um, the Omicron. Um, uh, symptoms are so mm-hmm. i think i probably got the flu because most of my friends who've had omicron or most people i know who have had omicron have been pretty fine like they've been they had maybe had a cough or a sore throat for a couple of days and then they got better um i had like a full-blown flu so hmm. i don't know who knows maybe i got the delta and it's not testing up but i'm getting better no well, I'm, I'm getting over that yeah i'm back on this episode didn't miss oh, didn't an good. episode of Bro History. That's all that matters, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing. How's the how's the uh, Puerto Rico move going so far? Well, you know, it's
0: it's good. Uh, I'm currently having a battle with Ikea. Uh, we bought that's a couch. Battle with Ikea, that's always fun. Yeah, dude. Yeah, dude. We bought a couch a while ago. And uh, to make a long story short, we went to the store. We don't have a car here, right? So, like, everything we have to do has to be, like, Ubers or, like, we have to rent something. So... We uh, went out over to the store and we were like, what do you have available? And the way that the Puerto Rican Ikea is, there's actually three of them like in like the 10 mile radius. And one of them is a showroom. So we went to the showroom and they're like, you know, we, we picked out a couch that we liked and we said, is this available? They said, yes. Uh, and it was kind of late. So they were like, you're going to have to go pick it up tomorrow at the, at the pickup spot. Cause it's like separate from that location. And we're like, all right, cool. So we paid for it. Next day we come to the place and you know I, I rented a guy that i found on facebook marketplace you, you rented,
1: was, a yeah, rented a guy yeah he,
0: rented a guy he was super nice but like he had the most beat up like old truck but all we really needed was a pickup to come pick the thing up anyway so we, we paid him money to come bring us to this ikea and when we got there they only had half the couch they only had a chaise lounge right and i was like all right well I'm not going to waste the money. I'm going to take the chaise lounge, but like, when is the rest of it coming? And they were like, oh, it'll be here tomorrow. So the next day I hit them up and I called before beforehand because I wasn't about to spend more money for nothing. And they were like, oh no, it's not, it's not here. It's actually on a truck. And I'm like, okay, well, how long will it be until it gets to the location? They're like, oh, it'll be about a week. So I'm like, well, that sucks. Week later, I called them again and I'm like, all right, well, so what's up with this couch? Like you haven't hit me up about it. And they were like, oh yeah, it's, it's, um, it's actually in the port waiting to be processed. It's not on a truck. And I'm like, all right, well now you're fucking with me. So I asked them, all right, well, when is the, when is it coming? And they're like, all right, it'll be two weeks. And I'm like, all right, so you guys are being crazy. So two weeks later now, uh, I call them again. I'm like, yo, what's the deal with this fucking couch? Everyone I'm talking to keeps pushing it out. Nobody's saying anything real. Nobody has any information. There's no tracking. There's nothing, right? And they're like, yeah, we have no idea when this couch is going to be here. Um, And I was like, all right, when was the last time you had a record of it? They were like, oh, January 1st, which was four days before we actually purchased the couch. Like Literally, everybody lied to me throughout the entire string, which is super fucking annoying. So we're like, all right, we want a refund. And then there were being dicks about the, the refund. So I'm going to have to go through my banking, like do a chargeback and it's going to be a pain in the ass. Meanwhile, I have half a couch and me and my girlfriend have just been like basically like sharing a chaise lounge to like sit on. And that's all we got. It's super uncomfortable, super annoying. I have a little bit of beef with Ikea. If you're listening, Ikea, you better sort this shit out. <laughs>
1: Yeah, IKEA is um kind of sucks. I mean, I've never really been a fan of going through the IKEA process of um, you know, spending a day in that maze-like store. Hey and the fucking meatballs store. are life, but the the meatballs, the meatballs. Are life, but
0: like honestly, I've never you know,
1: had one of their meatballs before. It's good, dude. It's good. It's like bad, but it's good. It's Swedish you meatballs, know? right? Yeah. It's it's bad, but it's good. It's good, bad food. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, it's only half a couch. We have I'll keep you updated. sort of your couch. Um, yeah. They're just like, supply chain bottlenecks, supply chain bottlenecks. Sorry, COVID-19, supply chain bottlenecks. That's an excuse for everything nowadays. Supply chain bottlenecks. COVID-19, sorry, labor shortage, supply chain bottlenecks. Can't blame us. It's the supply chain. You won't even get the supply chain. It's just crazy. Um, right. Such a convenient out for all retailers, especially really furniture very, very ones. Don't give them any um, ideas, Henry. I know. <laughs> well, all right. Let's get started <laughs> okay. on this episode because we're kicking off a, um, a series today. So we wanted to do an episode on the Korean War. And, um, you know, we were trying to figure out the best way to do it. So we're doing a multi-series um, or a multi-episode series on the Korean War where um, we're going to tackle different parts of Korean history, the lead up to the war, the actual war, and then, um, you know, different stages in the war. We're not entirely sure how many episodes this is going to be yet. Um, It might be four, it might be five, uh, but it's going to be more than one. And the way that we're going to do this is not going to be like four straight episodes. There might be some episodes in between that may be more um, current events related. Just in case something like, you know, if something pops off in Ukraine or or something just pops off anywhere in the world, you know, we're we're probably going to put our attention to that. But in the background, uh, most of our history work is going to be dedicated to the Korean War over the next, uh, you know, month or two, next six weeks or or so. So I hope you guys are interested in this because there's really not that much content out on the Korean War. Uh, There's not that much information out on the Korean War and... I think most Americans, um, I think everyone, pretty much everyone has a very rudimentary um, understanding of the Korean War. I mean, it's called the Forgotten War for a reason, and uh, it's called the Forgotten War. Um, Meanwhile, you know, one of the longest-running television shows, or I'm not sure if it was was the longest-running television show, but one of the biggest television shows of all time, MASH, you know, that's, that's the landscape of the Korean War. And, you know, um, if you look at the history of M.A.S.H., that was actually supposed to be Vietnam, like it was supposed to be about Vietnam, but they used uh, the Korean War because the, if they had it in Vietnam, it would have been too close to home. But, um, you know, my grandfather, he fought in, in the Korean War. Uh, I think my generation, our generation, Danny, like people around our age, um, our grandparents were probably too young to fight in World War II. So most likely if they were drafted, it was because of the Korean War. Mm-hmm. So, um, Yeah, I think on today's episode, we're going to concentrate more so on the early history of Korea to um, kind of just paint the picture of of how exactly the conflict started. So, um, yeah, Danny, maybe you want to elaborate a little bit more about what we're talking about because you primarily did most of the research and and kind of put together this episode. Yep, for sure. And and what, what I wanted to do with this episode is I wanted to talk a little bit about just some history
0: of Korea to kind of set the stage because a lot of the things that happen over the you know lifespan of you know Korean history somewhat sets up the stage for the actual conflict and I think it's really good to get this context and you know to your point you know a lot of Americans don't really know a whole lot about the Korean War and I count myself as one of them you know part of the reason why I was so excited to do research for this is because I didn't know very much at all about the Korean War. And, you know, that led me down one rabbit hole and another, and I'm hoping to share that that knowledge that I gained through all these rabbit holes uh, with you guys today. So I think uh, where I want to start is with some ancient history, and I want to model this a little bit after some of the other episodes that we've done on the origins of like the Chinese peoples and the Japanese peoples. And we've done a bunch of origin episodes like this.
1: We've done a lot of episodes on the, on the, on the birth of nation states. So that's right. We did, that's right. we did one on the birth of, um, primarily we did a four or five part episode series on how the Japanese nation state was created.
2: Mm-hmm. And as well as China. We did, mm-hmm. Kind of a
1: half one, a halfway Chinese one where we didn't get as thorough as the episode on Japan, but, you know, we covered some, some, uh, you know key moments of how the nation state was eventually formed so i guess we're going to start off by doing how um, not only how th- these nation states were formed but um, how there was a national korean identity how that was invented or how that was created so um, i'll leave it off to you if, if you want to take it back to um, the early early days of uh, thousands and thousands of years ago <laughs> yeah so i think uh,
0: where you could start really pinning down a Korea. Uh, some of the earliest evidence of civilization in Korea was found, you know, dating back to like 8,000 BC, uh, and it was, of course, in the form of distinct pottery that that you know showed up in the archaeological records. So, what was interesting about it is that it, it was super similar in style uh, to a lot of the uh, Far East peoples uh, of the region, including the Jomon people, who we discussed in our episode on the. Uh, Origin of the Japanese people. Um, But evidence of more complex like agricultural um, civilizations don't show up until a little bit later, like around 1500 to 300 BC. And again, mostly in the form of pottery. Uh, But this particular period was called the Mumon period. And the Mumon period followed mostly the same patterns as their neighbors of the same time. So what we see is You know, growth of agriculture that was concentrated around fertile lands that surrounded riverbanks and other bodies of water. Uh, We also see development of trade, uh, migration of peoples to and from the peninsula. Uh, A lot of it is wrapped up in in Japanese history as well. Uh, And, you know, introduction of things like metals and bronze and iron, things like that. And naturally, we see kind of a development and expansion and subsequent fall of a lot of minor chiefdoms. So, you know, not to get too deep uh, into this particular period of ancient history of Korea, but you can imagine what it was like. Um, it was very, very similar uh, in, in terms of, of tone and, um, and themes as, uh, you know, was with China or with uh, ancient Japan. But where it really starts getting interesting is, you know, in the kingdoms and the kingdoms periods.
1: Yeah. So when does so when does Korea start to become Korea? So uh, I would say probably
0: around the seventh century BC, uh, we see a shift from like a lot of these individual feudal states uh, to a centralized kingdom, and that one was called the first one was called the uh, Gojoseon, uh, and it had its capital in what would today be known as Pyongyang. And by the fourth century, it got big enough that it was mentioned in the Chinese records uh, of the time, which is how you know it was legit. So I would probably start to put it right around there. Um, And I think it's kind of important to note that uh, the similarities you see with the early history of Korea, um, you know, with the ancient development of their neighboring civilizations, uh, because... In many ways, it sets up kind of the founding elements of the Korean national identity that would, you know, they would later use these elements, you know, in later conflicts. And, and in particular, in the lead up of the Korean War. Um, so there is a legend uh, behind the founding of the Gojoseon Kingdom. And I think it's worth taking some time to flesh out uh, because I think this is, uh, at least in part, it's the basis of the national identity of Korea Um one which Kim Il-sung, the first leader of North Korea, uses as a political mechanism later on. So if you've listened to our previous episodes on the origins of the Japanese and Chinese people, you could probably guess how the story goes. Uh, so there's this guy. His name is Dangung Wanggyom, or just Dangung for short. And uh, he was the founder of the Gojoseon Kingdom. And that kingdom spread between parts of Manchuria in the north and uh, the northern parts of the Korean Peninsula.
1: Also, he was a god king because every good king needs a special relationship with uh, with the national god. Um, <laughs> right. You know, whether they were chosen by God um, by divine right, like like Louis the Fourteenth, or like how um, you know the Emperor of Japan is related to the the solar goddess. Uh, what Amaterasu is that? Am I pronouncing right. that correctly? Amaterasu. Yeah, you got it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they do that to legitimize the state because the king must be an intermedi- intermediary between uh, deities and the people. Uh, but right. in this case, it's an actual god king like a pharaoh. Right. Exactly. And, and as the legend goes, uh,
0: his grandfather uh, was named Huanin, uh, who is the lord of heaven. So basically God. Right. And Huanin had a son and his son's name was Huanung. Also like a god, I guess a demigod, I don't know God, another god. Anyway, so this guy, Hwanung, he was really into earth and he wanted to live in the mountains and be a, be a human for some reason, right. Uh, Huanin gave the, the grandpa, Hwanin, he gave the green light to Huanung the father, and 3,000 of his followers uh, to descend on from the heavens to go live on the Baktu mountain in North Korea. Uh, which is an important site for North Korea. Uh, And they ended up teaching all of the humans like super cool shit like art and medicine and agriculture and morality and so on and so forth. And I don't know about you, man, but I'm getting heavy ancient alien vibes from this. (laughs) What do you think?
1: Um, Well, I heard that the Park 2 Mountain is where uh, Kim Jong-il scored uh, like a 34 with five (laughs) hole-in-ones. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and and I'm apparently, joking. It's the I, think that, I think that Kim Il Sung. So yeah, I think evidently. that's the that's the that's um he did that in, in a golf course in Pyongyang, but mm-hmm. um he still did it though. He shot a 34 with five hole apparently. ones. Apparent, yeah. uh, well, according to legend, um, right? Kim Jong Un. I don't know Kim Jong oh, no, Il. I think it was Kim Jong Il. He was yeah, the one who claimed who Kim that. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Kim Jong Il. Um, but yeah, um, as you're saying, um, you know the the um you know these mountains are you know not only very holy to north koreans but the south koreans as well right right it's super important for them and for because it's like the
0: the place where god came down and you know taught koreans cool shit and like happy people
1: right well i think i think um I know it's like kind of a, a problem between North and South Koreans where South Koreans are barred from seeing these mountains well they've um, been, they've been
0: letting some Koreans go uh, and visit some special like um heritage sites of Korea in the north um it's not great and it's hard to get into but you know they've they've been softening up a little bit on well it's that, on the Chinese
1: border. Yeah. it's on the, it's on the Chinese border so mm-hmm. South Koreans could technically go to China and, and visit I guess one side of the mountain I, I guess they don't have access to all the different yeah. heritage sites there but there I guess there there is you know I think South Korea and China have had a relationship since like 1994 or so yeah I think that's when they opened it up. Um, so I they've had access at least till then but yeah I, I know la- a couple of years ago during the negotiations, um, between North Korea and South Korea, that was one of the, the concessions that North Korea gave to South Korea that I guess there yeah. was going to be more entrance or more accessibility to uh, the Pactu Mountains uh, exactly. for South exactly. Korean citizens.
0: Exactly. Uh, anyway, back
1: back to the legend, though, because
0: this is pretty interesting, uh, or at least I found it pretty interesting. Um, so there, there's a, evidently a bear
1: and a tiger, Right. A bear and a tiger, every story, it's always a bear and a tiger. Who else but a bear and a tiger? I don't know, man. It's just it's just kind of part of the theme, right? So apparently the bear
0: and the tiger, they wanted to be human because humans are dope or whatever. And so they prayed to that son, uh, Huanong, you know, the son of God or whatever, uh, who had just set up shop in the mountains and asked them if they could become human, And Juan basically gave him a keto diet of like garlic cloves and plants and shit and told him to go quarantine in a cave and stay out of the sunlight for like 100 days. And according to the story, the tiger gave up after like 20 days. And honestly, I don't blame the tiger because we all know how hard lockdowns were for us. So don't blame him. But uh, apparently the bear stuck it out. And after like 100 days uh, became a woman. And the woman's name was um Ong Um And eventually uh, she got kind of sad because she didn't have a man in her life. And prayed under a birch tree to Huan Ng, the son. Uh, again, to see what he could do for her. And Huan Ng ends up marrying her. And, you know, one thing leads to another. And they have a kid. And that kid is Dongung. So this kid, this guy, he's like half bear, half god. Or whatever, it's actually pretty badass. Man bear man, pig, man man bear pig. Well, just minus yeah. the pig part, just man bear. Man God, man bear God, whatever. <laughs> <Man> bear, <laughs> so, like I said, Don uh, da- Gun, this guy, he's the founder of the Gojozian Kingdom, uh, which apparently rose to enough providence to rival their neighboring Chinese dynasty. Uh, but that part is kind of debatable. But if you follow the legend, that's how it goes, right? And to this day, there are about thirteen religions that are devoted to the worship of Dongun, the man bear god guy. And this story is pervasive among Korean culture.
1: And I guess what's important about this story is that it's used as a way to promote the idea of um, you know the uniqueness of Korea. Uh, and the uniqueness of Koreans as a singular, uh, homogeneous group of peoples um, and ancient peoples. And, you know, these stories become a unifying ideology that sets the precedent for things like national borders and, and uh, you know, a centralized um, authority. Right. Totally. Um, and, and this kingdom, I think, is is really, you know, uh,
0: like a foundational Now, there were a lot of different kingdoms that came after this. Uh, There's uh, a lot. And I'm going to omit many, many of them, even though they're kind of important. But, you know, we're going to skip ahead a bunch and we're going to go from the Joseon kingdom way back in the day. uh, And we're going to go to the Go Joseon kingdom. Uh, which is not to be confused with the earlier one, because but it was named in honor of the former. But what you need to know about the kingdoms in between, you know, from like 300 BC to late 1300s AD, is that they fought with China a lot uh, and mostly earned respect as a prosperous kingdom. Um, they got Buddhism. Uh, they formed a written language based on Chinese characters. Uh, they conducted long-distance trade Uh, all the way, like, as far as the caliphates in the Middle East, which was pretty impressive. Um, So a lot of shit happened, really important stuff, but we're just going to skip over a lot of it because I want to talk a lot about this Joseon kingdom uh, because this is the last kingdom in the Korean history before, I don't know, shit hits the fan. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Um, So this kingdom was founded by a general named Taijo. And it, it was mostly based on a Confucianism-based ideology called Neo-Confucianism, which focused mostly on leading lives of study and integrity uh, over wealth and power. Uh, you know, very progressive. And Taijo moved to the capital. Uh, he moved the capital from, uh, from Hanyang, uh, excuse me, to Hanyang, which is present-day Seoul. Uh, so it went from Pyongyang to Seoul, basically. And he built up power around a strong royal authority, um, and he also did a lot of social and economic reforms to boot. But uh, basically, the Joseon King dynasty, that experienced a crazy golden age where there were so much advancements in a lot of different places, so culture and science. You know, they, they invented the current Korean alphabet, uh, Hangul. Uh, they made huge strides in meteorology and geography and medicine and military technology and agricultural technology. Basically, a lot of this stuff they were super good at, and and in many cases they were unparalleled by other kingdoms of this time. So they they were really on their stride.
1: But this is around the same time when they started getting invaded from places like Japan, right? Well, yeah. <laughs>
0: so, uh, but before Japan, there's there's some other invasions um, and you know uh i think yeah let's talk about Japan fuck it so in in 1592 uh and again in 1598 the japanese daimyo uh toyotomi hideyoshi he actually tried to invade the asian continent through korea because that was like the closest point for him to get to but eventually he stopped the korean military he was stopped by the korean military with the assistance of the chinese ming dynasty at the time and also uh, by a new army of these irregular Korean militias, and they're known as the Righteous Army. They'll be super important again later when we start talking about the actual Korean War. Uh, but what you need to know about it is just a bunch of peasants and guerrilla fighters that got together to like beat off a foreign invader, and it'll basically be the same thing again
1: uh, during the Korean War. Um, but. Uh, yeah. So just as they were rebuilding, they get invaded by the the Manchu to the right.
0: north. And that, right, right, twice. Uh, and and I think what's important to know about the Manchu is that you know they were they were basically a precursor to the Qing Dynasty, and they were called the Later Jin. Um, and so th- they basically united all of these Jurchen tribes of Manchuria and started messing around for power in China at the time. And we talked a lot about you know the 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 rise of the Qing empire uh and, and talked about this specifically in our episodes of on china but uh all this is going on at the same time as Joseon the Joseon dynasty is a thing and since Joseon had a good relationship with the Ming dynasty uh because they helped them out with the Japanese invasion Joseon felt obligated to help out the Ming um when you know when the later Jin the you know the Manchurian folks started fucking around and, you know, they did not really have anything against the later Jin in particular. It was more just like out of obligation because they got a lot of help during that earlier invasion of the Japanese. And so there was this coup attempt that got set up in Joseon, uh, but it was put down and the survivors of that coup fled to the later Jin, uh, where they convinced them to invade Joseon for revenge. Now, at the same time, the... Joseon's started adopting a stronger pro Ming and anti later Jin stance, which increased that tension between both of those states. A little later on, the later Jin got the idea to invade Joseon, uh, basically to solidify their position and to get more resources to help in their fight against the Ming dynasty because they were kind of taking some losses there. But eventually they succeeded and they did, um, you know, take over Joseon, and Joseon became a tributary of the later Jin somewhere around 1627 and they became increasingly salty about it. So Joseon was not happy about the fact that, you know, that the, the later Jin took them over. And, you know, they personally thought it was like wrong to abandon the Ming and now start paying tribute to the later Jin because of you know all the help that the Ming dynasty gave them with that Japanese invasion. Um, and the Joseon court started getting filled up with all of these anti-Manchu war hawks. And this eventually
1: led to a second Manchu invasion on Joseon. What's, um, what's funny about this is that the Japanese end up becoming nervous about the Manchu. Um, because um and pirates, they're called Jurchen pirates. Yep. Um, they had invaded them once before, like... You know, 500 years prior to this, like 1080, and they seemed to think that there was a land bridge, a land bridge, from um, Manchuria to to um, Hokkaido, which there wasn't. But you know, they thought this land bridge was going to be used to invade them, which um, and, and we spoke about this in our episodes on Japan, That's which right. led to the Tokugawa shogunate to um, to to them offering to help um, the Joseon dynasty, uh, you know, fight the Manchu invaders. But Korea ends up refusing them, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. They were like, nope, you guys tried
0: to invade us last time. Fuck you guys.
1: Well, they were, because they were nervous about the, the Japanese trying to, um, on the low, try to annex territory. Mm-hmm. They were right. <laughs> they were right. To yeah, that. <laughs> I guess they were. History proves that they were. They were right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's
0: just kind of like an ironic and weird situation for Korea at the time. Yeah, to be like, oh fuck, my friends are being beat up. I got taken over by some other people. My former enemies are like, hey, we don't like those guys either. Let's uh, team up. And they're like, nah, we don't trust you.
2: It's weird. It was very
0: weird. But I mean, eventually the Qing Dynasty gets formed out of the later Jin. And the relationship between the Joseon Empire and the new Qing Dynasty starts to stabilize. Uh, And this is when historians pinned Korea as having been established, like, firmly as a nation-state. And they enjoyed another, like, 200 years of relative regional stability with its neighbors. But just because they had, like, regional stability didn't mean that they didn't have any problems.
1: So... um there was like a Game of Thrones story you wanted to tell us, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, th- there was this, um,
0: there was this rampant corruption in the government, which you know started Korea on this downward path, and and it starts around 1800. You know when the current king Jeongjo uh, dies, and basically he leaves his throne to his ten-year-old son Sunjo. Now, what resulted was a period called the Sado Jongchi, known as the quote unquote "in-law politics or another way to look at it would be the oligarchic rule, where the actual power and rule fell not on this like 10-year old kid, but on his mother's father, the, the former King Zhangzhou's father-in-law. And so in a nutshell, when King Zhangzhou died, his son was still too young to rule on his own. and so his wife, Queen Jongsun, steps down as the queen regent and let her dad, Kim Jo
3: Sun take control. I know there's a lot of fucking names, but tough. <laughs> I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China.
0: I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana.
3: We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face off launches April 9th.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, anyway, so the dad, the stepdad,
0: or not the stepdad, the, the father-in-law, Kim Jo's son, he was already a prominent member Uh, of the court and he quickly used this new uh regency that he got as a way to consolidate power for himself and the clan that he was a part of and and the head of called the Andong Kim clan does this remind you of anything in Game of Thrones
1: (laughs) yeah so when Robert Baratheon dies and um young Joffrey becomes king and uh Tywin Lannister becomes Joffrey's hand and, and and um you know consolidates power for for himself and and uh you know takes power in the name of, of house Lannister that's or right to improve the position of house Lannister that's right
0: uh I don't know anything about the son son I don't know if he was a dick like Joffrey but you can definitely you know relate the father to Robert Baratheon you know Joffrey to the son and Tywin Lannister to the you know father-in-law there I also have no idea whether or not you know he was a the, the, the kid was a product of incest or not, but, you know, the parallels are definitely there. Uh, so if you're having trouble following it, that's that's how I would think about it. Anyway, so the, the corruption starts exploding in this period in, in a few specific areas. So one of them was land taxes. There was a lot, a huge increase in land taxes uh, because now, you know, they have full control of the government. So they want to make a bunch of money. Uh, they start making some changes with military service um and also the granary system so granary system is basically like how they store and distribute food you know so they take over taxes military service and food uh and basically they have like a de facto rule of one clan the andokim uh over another or all of them uh and it created a crazy amount of inequity uh and since they had control over the throne by proxy um no other prominent families could do a damn thing about it. And as I mentioned before, this period was known as the in-law politics because it was the in-law, the the dad-in-law uh, who took over. But another important way to look at it was like oligarchical rule. Uh, so one big way to highlight this was how government posts were assigned signed in this
1: period. This is where we're really um, starting to... Um, kind of lay out some of the future uh, social conditions that led to you know right. the war between North and South Korea and mm-hmm. the emergence of a communist movement in Northern Korea. Right now, with the, was the you know the vast discrepancy um, disparity in wealth and you know this large landowning class and this peasant class um, kind of set it, it kind of became a tick, ticking time bomb for you know for ideologies like that.
0: Definitely. And, it, and basically, the way that government posts were being assigned at this time was through bribes, right? So yeah. An, anyone with money can bribe the ruling class to get a post. So whether it's high ranking or low ranking, and anything in between, pretty much everything was for sale.
1: You have to, you have to wonder. You have to wonder because South Korea is very allergic to like corruption. You <laughs> yeah. know, like they'll they'll throw they threw their um you know their previous prime minister before Moon in right. jail mm-hmm. for for corruption. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, this is the reason why, because they had this you experience. To, yeah, you have to, you know, it seems like these um, these encounters with, um, you know, corruption and bribery and, and uh, oligarchic rule. Because, um, you know, South Korea, before it was a democracy, it wasn't a democracy until, you know, later on. I mean, for, for a really long time, South Korea was behind North Korea in uh, economic progress. It wasn't until the late 70s. South Korea actually passed South Korea. It wasn't until the late 80s, um, I believe, that's when South Korea actually became a democracy and in their, in their military dictatorship um, mm-hmm. ended. What left, yeah. ended. But, you know, for a really long time, South Korea was not a great place. Um, it only started really developing over the past uh, three decades or so. Um, it really started becoming part of, like, the Western world as we know it. Um, but... Right. interesting no, so, to look back at this and, and see you know where a lot of how um their um unwillingness to kind of put up with corruption comes from um it's it's interesting to the 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 see where this starts yeah
0: no totally and this is definitely that period where where they start getting burned on like internal political corruption and well really what burned them the most was because was how the the system got set up so if they People are buying ranking positions, right? They have to use money to do that, right? They have to spend their capital to do that. And since it costs a lot of money to buy yourself a position in power in these times, to get that money back, what these oligarchs were doing was levying super heavy taxes on the peasants to get money and food and other resources uh, to basically recoup all those costs. And and technically they can do this now because they had this fancy government appointment. And functionally speaking... They got away with it, even if it was like, you know, outside of the scope of whatever laws that they had, because the ruling clan made money from these bribes. So they just let them do whatever the fuck they wanted. Um, and this was, I think, starkly opposed by the Confucius scholars. You know, remember, Joseon was established as a neo-Confucianist kingdom. And this new style of government that was popping up, if you want to call it a style of governance at all... Uh, it, it was totally against the founding principles of the Joseon Kingdom, and as you can imagine, it caused a crazy amount of civil unrest among the Korean populace. And this unrest allowed new ideologies to take root among the masses. And these new ideologies developed both internally, so like organically, but also some of it was imported from Western influences.
1: Yeah, let's let's um kind of zero in on this because I think it's important. So. Um, we need to talk about colonialism because it sets the stage for a lot of the upcoming conflicts. So, you know, we, you know, we, we know now that, um, you know, Korea had been relatively stable in, in terms of uh, foreign policy and foreign relations, but internal political corruption was causing a huge amount of, of tension among, um, you know, the, the population. And you know it creates this hunger for new ideologies. Now, um, with the growing demand for you know commodities uh, produced in the Far East, like silk and uh, porcelain and, and tea, in the West during the 1800s, um, this is when you see a shift from straight up annexing territory to setting up. You know trade colonies all over Southeast Asia, you know like cities like Hong Kong and and Macau and Saigon and Shanghai You know all these kind of international cities um, That main purpose was to do business Um, Now the problem was, you know a lot of these Asian countries did not want the West They did not not they didn't really want what the West was um, exporting so where I'm trying to get to is like the opium wars, like maybe go over the opium wars and the impact of that. Yeah, for sure. So
0: in a, in a nutshell, between like the 17th and 19th centuries, China had developed a, you know, like you said, super advanced civilization and they didn't need to import a whole lot of anything. As a matter of fact, the opposite was true. They, things like that they were making were in high demand all over the world. Like you said, tea, silk, fine China, stuff like that. and, The problem was that China didn't want to trade any of the Western junk that they were getting uh, for their very valuable stuff. They only wanted silver, uh, which was kind of in a short supply in the West. And there was a long depression going on, you know, in in these Western countries, which is kind of what prompted them to do colonialism in the first place. So what happens is we get like a bit of a trade deficit that eventually, go figure, turns into a war. Uh, So the British, they come up with an idea... On how to trade with china to get the shit that they needed without you know forking over the silver to do it and it's drugs straight up they just sold them drugs opium very specifically and the chinese loved it loved it loved it and it got so bad that the qing emperor basically tried to ban opium trading uh and the british were not having it so they sent over battleships to make sure that the opium continued to flow into china uh so one day The Qing government decides to do something crazy and they destroyed a shit ton of opium uh, to curb that problem. And this led to the first opium war and blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, the British own Hong Kong.
1: Yeah, I wanted to bring up um, the opium wars because, you know, at the time, um, the Joseon kingdom takes notes of this interaction with the West and it makes them nervous. So, you know, they start slowing down trade with the West gradually to protect themselves from conflicts like these. But, you know, they run into the, you know, a few particular incidents anyway.
3: Right.
0: And one of those incidents actually involved the U.S. I didn't even know about this uh, until doing the research on it. I thought that the first time that the U.S. you know started getting into tiffs with Korea was during the Korean War. But this actually is pretty interesting. So back in 1866, there was this American merchant ship called the General Sherman. And they, they went over to Korea to try to open up Korea for trade. And they had a little bit of a miscommunication and they end up sailing upriver, and they get stranded at Pyongyang and the Koreans basically told them to get the fuck out. And the Americans, I don't know, they, they responded by killing four Koreans and kidnapped a military officer. That fight lasted for four days and eventually Korean ships lit the general Sherman on fire. Um, and then the American response came in 1871, a little bit later, uh, they sent some ships and military over to Ganghwa Island, where the U.S. killed probably 240 or more Koreans before they eventually just withdrew. So, lighting that ship on fire is used, actually, by North Korean propaganda later as a way to show that, like, you know, Koreans don't fuck around and... It was a rallying cry for the USS Pueblo incident in 1968, where North Koreans captured a U.S. spy ship and tortured the crew. We'll cover that in a later episode. Um, but, you know, they—they, they, this incident is kind of like the precursor to that, which is why we're bringing it up.
1: Um, yeah, it's, it's, real, it's real interesting that, you know, the, there was a military conflict that I would say 95%, probably more than that, of Americans or not aware of at all between the United States and Korea in the eighteen hundreds. Yep. I had no idea. And and that's that's pretty wild. Um so there was another domestic. We're not talking about a minor thing. We're talking about two hundred and forty three people were killed.
0: Yeah. You know that's that's a major offensive, you know, like that's hmm. I mean they were pissed about four people, Korea, that is can you imagine how pissed they were after two hundred and forty people, you know? Yeah. It's like, a lot. Um so there's this other uh, issue, um, and it was kind of a domestic issue, but it was like, you know, part of it was because of importing new ideas, and, and that was the influence of Christianity on Korea. So dur- during all this trade, or forced trade in many ways, uh, there, there was also a lot of Christian missions that came to Korea. And initially, you know, the, the government of Joseon, they tolerated it, but n- the new ideas that they brought to Korea— Threatened the Joseon hegemony because it drew in a lot of that disaffected population that disaffected peasant population and Joseon clamped down on Christianity and started persecuting them but they never really could fully put it down and actually you know Korea's got a pretty strong um, Christian presence to this day maybe not in the north but definitely in the south. And in one case, um, the Joseon court ends up massacring a bunch of French Catholic missionaries. So French, they, they end up invading the same Island that the U S hit a couple years back, the Gangha Island, and the Korean military suffered heavy losses, but then eventually the French just left. They just left the Island, which
1: is pretty crazy. Man, this,
0: this Island really just never caught a, caught a break. (laughs) No, no, not at all. Um, Not, not even a little bit, but listen, you have to, you've got a lot of things going on here, right? So you have this forced trade relationship, which I just wanted to say a side note on this, like colonialism and like forced trade is, I don't know how best to describe it, but it feels like kind of rapey, you know, like no means no, bro. (laughs) Like, I don't want to trade with you. You can't force them to trade with you, you know? But that's what it feels like. You, You get that feeling? When you read about shit like this,
1: uh, forced trade, um, yeah. yeah, I guess, I guess, rapey is, is, um, a good analogy for it. It's, it's definitely an act of aggression to force someone to trade with you if they don't want to trade with you. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's just like weird, you know? Imagine it, imagine if you were doing that on the individual level, like a drug dealer was selling you drugs <laughs> and was forcing you to take your drugs.
3: Yeah, like, well, I, hey, I don't want to take, I don't
1: want to, I don't want to take this heroin well you're gonna you're gonna do it you're gonna <laughs> buy my I kill you yeah yeah you're gonna <laughs> so buy my i'm gonna you're <laughs> gonna buy my heroin you're gonna sit down and you're on your couch you're going to you're gonna, watch, do, that heroin. You're gonna do that heroin while watching a documentary on the grateful dead <laughs> yeah yeah totally so
0: so we've got these these forced trade relationships super rapey you know and, and that that causes some trouble with some foreign powers and then you've got all these internal struggles that you know i mean they had internal struggles because of all the corruption but it you know the struggle really gets going because of the spread of all these you know new ideas like like religions like christianity and at the same time while all this shit is going on you've got the meiji restoration in full swing over in japan you've got tsarist russia in you know in the north that's growing and you get the U.S. winning the Spanish-American War in the Pacific, which creates a lot of strong powers in Korea's Pacific backyard. And so to try and protect itself, by the late 1800s, Korea closes its doors to all nations except China.
1: But this still didn't do the trick. So they, they try to pull what a Japan was pulling. Exactly. Prior to the Meiji Restoration. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. You know, Because the same thing happened to japan where japan's in in 1853 the u.s shows up and says hey man um you need to open up your borders and trade with us trade with me bro we're gonna just set fire on your ports and it's gonna be a disaster for the leadership here and you know they previously had a um you know as of 16 um 99 or so I, i forget the exact year the Tokugawa shogunate takes power and and closes the borders, but um, they had closed borders for over 200 years. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's interesting to see that, you know, Korea had the same policy as Japan, but, you know, it it obviously is much harder for them to have that type of isolationist, that, that isolationalist, um, I'm saying that word incorrectly right now, but I'm not even going to try to attempt to say it right. Um, they can't have. They don't have the luxury of having an island, right? Right. They're like attached
0: to the land, which is why they don't close the doors to China, right? Um, yeah. Also because they happen to be a um, China was the suzerain of of um, Korea at the time, you know. After all those conflicts with the Manchu and shit, um, but you know, like I said before, they it, like closing off the the borders just sound, sounded like. I mean, what else are you going to do? You know, like you got all this shit happening. People are fucking around and you're worried about it. So like, it doesn't leave you a whole lot of options to fix it. And the option that they chose, which a lot of people chose like Japan, which was to just close down and China did the same thing too, you know? So they're all kind of following the same trends, the same, same lines, just, just slightly different times, but like closing off their country didn't fix all their problems you know, they still had all those internal issues to to, to deal with, and you know, a guy named um, Cho Jyu, he starts spreading a religious ideology um, called Donghak. <laughs> Donghak, <laughs> and uh, and the re- nice. the religion basically it it becomes popular in like rural areas. You know, on the one hand, it lined up really well with the Joseon's policy of isolationism. You know, because they they also said, like, hey, to prevent foreign influence from ruining Korea, we have to, like, close close our borders and, you know, not do trade and shit like that. But on the other hand, though, you know, its idea to make Korea great again was to institute a lot of, like, democratic and human rights reforms, which was diametrically opposed to the corruption that was happening during the oligarchical, like, in-law politics that plagued the Joseon court. So they weren't having it. And... You know, nationalism really starts taking hold in Korea around this time, you know, and there starts to become a a rise in these revolutionary peasant guerrilla groups. And, you know, they they start forming, you know, to to basically push back on the man and and to combat this, the Joseon court ends up arresting and executing uh, Cho'e uh, and the peasant groups went into hiding. Uh, They went in the mountains, Uh, but their ideas never died. Like they stuck around and they'll come back, uh, you know, later, especially during the Korean War. Um, but later on, Korea ends up getting forced to start doing trade again with, the, with Japan and the U.S. Uh, through some not so, uh, not so nice treaties. And at the same time, there were these conflicts between the progressive reformer elements in Korea and the Joseon court which led to a coup, and it was the Gapson Coup, and that happened in 1884. Um, I should say it's a coup attempt because, you know, it it didn't work out. Um, So the coup and the reformers were also probably backed by Japan because Japan wanted to do more trade with them, so they thought it would be easier to do that way. But the coup ended up getting put down by the support of the Qing military, and the Qing dynasty started exercising more control over Korea, uh, including who they can set up embassies with, like who they could trade with, who they can talk to, shit like that. And they also attempted to create this trade monopoly with Korea to stop Japan's influence in Korea. Like they were like, oh, you can only do trade with us or, you know, we'll we'll totally flood the markets with our shit so that Japan doesn't make any money here. Eventually, what this causes is some anti-Chinese riots to break out in, in Korea. And honestly, again, it was probably backed by the Japanese uh, because they're kind of salty about the fact that they're, you know, China's flooding the markets. And a bunch of Chinese shops in Korea got set on fire or like destroyed. And this left Japan in a pretty strong position as Korea's main trading partner.
1: So wait, before we wrap this up, let's talk about Japan a little bit more. Um, because we need to talk about their role, and I know we're probably going to jump into more of their role in a later episode because it's it's such a important part of the story. The relationship between Japan and and uh, and Korea, uh, specifically North Korea, where you know North Korean propaganda, um, Japan is basically their Nazis. You know what I mean? You know how yeah. like Nazis are are are. The villains out of a lot of U.S. media or a lot of U.S. Hollywood stories. That's right. Um, You know that's the role the Japanese are play. um, You know within North Korean as well as Chinese media. Um, let's talk about Meiji, uh, Meiji Japan, real quick.
0: Yeah, sure. So, you know, Meiji Japan, they they were growing, and they you know they were also growing in influence in Korea because they were they forced them to do trade with them. And, you know, they had a lot of tension with China because they were basically battling over a bunch of shit up to and including, uh, you know, their ability to trade with Korea. And this, you know, eventually ends up uh, having a first Sino-Japanese war. And that happened in 1894 to 1895. And it basically forced China to abandon Korea because Japan won. And Japan, now having one, and now they have all this influence over Korea, they force Korea to open up its ports and they quickly start, you know, importing a lot of modernization movements into Korea to basically establish more control over Korea, right? So they're come in, make everything more modern, right? You guys were backwater and like closed off and we're going to show you the way and all this other shit. But, you know, it, latently what that means is that they end up relying on Japan and uh, a lot more as a result. And so this didn't really go over very well, especially not with the Korean leadership. And And Korea looked to Czarist Russia uh, for help um, because Japan had been gaining way too much control over Korea after that first Sino-Japanese war. And so Japan, again, they're messing around in Korea. They, they were involved... With the murder of uh, the the head of of state, the Empress uh, Myong seon and she was the one who reached out to Russia for help. And the Russians ended up having to leave Korea uh, because, you know, the the head of state that, that was like buddy buddy with them was no longer around.
2: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts. So 10 years later, and this is pretty interesting, You know, Japan goes and beats Russia in that Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905. And that was crazy. And we've talked about this war before, Um, in our our episodes about Japan but it shocked the world you know like Meiji Japan wasn't shit before this you know like the fact that they won two back-to-back wars like one against China and one against Russia these major powers it it was it was unheard of
1: and yeah um, the Russo-Japanese War and then um, you know the the victory of Ethiopia against Italy you know they both happened around the same time Yep, they're both like symbols of like oh maybe maybe Western imperialism isn't all that strong, right? Right. These two, you know, one major power, one pretty big power, are defeated by, you know, these um, second rate countries. You know what I mean? Like these countries Mm -hmm. from the previous third world, right? In Ethiopia and in and in um, say Italy. And in uh, in Japan, and now they're on the world stage as like the new colonial powers, right? And prior to this, Japan was like locked down, right? And they they rejected
0: modernity, they rejected the industrial revolution, and suddenly shit changes up, and you know we get the Meiji Restoration in full swing, and they go from like backwater nothing, you know, to beating major powers in 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 military conflicts. That's just nuts, you know? And, you know, part of the, you know, to the, to the victor goes the spoils here is that Japan ends up making Korea its protectorate. Uh, and that was with the USLA treaty in 1905. But that didn't last very long. Five years later, they end up just straight up annexing it with the Japan-Korea annexation treaty in 1910. And that effectively ended the kingdom of Joseon.
1: And, you know, we, we can save the rest for the future episodes, but, um, you know, there's a lot to unpack about Japan's annexation of, of Korea and, um, you know, why this is important to the Korean War. But uh, just kind of a, I guess this is a, this is a preview of some of the future episodes that we do is that, you know, the reason why we decided to do a more so um, high overview, early history to, you know, the, the creation of, the, the, the creation and the um, evaporation of, of uh know the Korean nation-state and when I say the Korean nation-state I mean the kingdom of Joseon Um, a lot of the a lot of the South Koreans a lot of the people that the US backed during the war were actually the former collaborators with the Japanese Empire which, you know, sets up this dynamic between, you know, the nationalist and collaborators. And we'll, we're going to get into this in more in more detail, um, you know, in the, in, in the following episodes that we, we, we cover this on. Um, is there anything that you want to add, though? Yeah, I was just
0: say, you know, a lot of these themes end up popping up a lot
1: with the Korean
0: War. And I think, you know, what's unfortunate, too, is that, you know, we've been reading a bunch of books and, and seen a lot of sources. And a lot of the... Places that talk about the Korean War mostly focus on the armed military conflict. Like, you're going to get a lot of, you know, sources and background information there. But I think what's more important or not more important, but very important to the story is to understand Korea's track throughout history. Because it really makes it, you know, it helps you to understand the why behind all these conflicts— and you know like many other nations in this region korea has a super long history that stretches back thousands of years and its relationship with its neighbors it it both defined its status as a as like a, an independent unique nation and also the history of the conflicts that it had with its, with its neighbors shaped the ideologies and created the conditions I think, by which the Korean War would take place. And you kind of like foreshadowed it a little bit and gave a bit of a preview. But, you know, in this part of the story that we're at, Japan annexes, you know, uh, Korea. And there's a lot of fucked up things that happen here. And the people that the United States ends up backing are the collaborators with Japan, the Japanese Empire at the time. And and that does create, as you said, this, you know, polarization, this this schism in Korea about what Korea is and, you know, who should lead Korea and like, you know, what kind of who's responsible for the atrocities that they had to go through during this period.
1: Yeah. So I think on our next, our following episodes on the Korean War, um, we're going to be hitting... World War II specifically the Japanese occupation and um, you know what were the events that led up to the eventual um, outbreak and violence in the 19th in, in 1950 and then we'll probably have another episode to go over the specifics of the war itself because there's a lot to get there I mean did you guys know that basically every week a Korean an industrialized uh, Korean city was just wiped off the face of the earth during the Korean War it was brutal like the amount of napalm that was dropped on Korea is unimaginable. Um, you know, the amount of civilians that died in the Korean War is unimaginable. The, the and we, we talked about, you know, the polarization, the level of, of um, violence during the Korean War between North and South Koreans is unimaginable and understated and not really talked about. So um, we're talking about a hateful war, like a 30 year war type level of kind of violence um, where there were just so many different atrocities and mass graves and, and, and killings, um, so we're going to hit those those topics in the following episodes. Um, but I hope you know this kind of gives you the the foundation of what were the conditions within the country that made this the state a ticking time bomb for a conflict like this, and of course. You know the Cold War and how it's it's um it's how the outside influence you know external issues like the Cold War and U.S. foreign policy and things like that how that plays a role into it. Um, You know maybe we can even get into some areas in the in in U.S. policy. You know something I wanted to touch in later episodes when we covered this was um, U.S. people who opposed um, Mm -hmm. intervention in the Korean War, like uh, Robert Taft. Um, of, uh, of, of Ohio who actually loses his election to, um, to Eisenhower uh, in a Republican primary, but he was against the Korean War and around this time you, in American politics you also see the um, one side of right wing politics, it basically is exiled from the other like you see more of like the Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party really take power um, in in uh, modern-day conservatism, like this is when the National Review becomes like the mainstay of Conservative ink, And a lot of the you know previous conservative thinkers were, were kind of shunned from the movement. They were pushed out because they didn't they were they opposed um, you know U.S. militarism. So there's a lot of really interesting developments, and you can even make the argument that the Korean War is the it's where. Um, the it's the genesis of like the U.S. military industrial complex. Of course, it comes mm-hmm. out of World War II, and you know we've talked about a lot about this about how World War II gave rise to the to the birth of the military industrial complex with all the money that was being spent. Um, but this is where you kind of see the first MIC war. Um, it, it's it's a huge turning point in U.S. in U.S. history, in world history, in Asian history. So um, I, I think Danny and I both agree to cover this carefully and, uh, and slowly just to give the full context.
0: Yep. We'll try our best. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll, 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 try our best. And, you know, if this goes well, then I think we can, we can, um, you know, expand into maybe doing Vietnam and, and, th- and other stuff like this. Um, so this was an hour episode. My throat's starting to kill me right now. Um, <laughs> do you want to wrap this one up and then, um, and then, um, yeah wrap this up (laughs) sorry i got i got what uh what joe biden has (laughs) every single time whenever i have a a brain fart i'm just gonna be like i got the flow sorry um yeah let's wrap this up so just uh take note we're not gonna be releasing these episodes uh simultaneously most likely so there'll probably be another episode in between our follow-up to this one so um just just take note of that the next korean war episode will probably be released two weeks from now um i think the following week we're probably going to cover something um either in ukraine or, or yemen or or maybe both something more international news and then um we'll, we'll, we'll probably do the korean war stuff like every other week not 100 sure 100 sure about that but we're still trying to nail down the best way to do it um anything else to add before we wrap this one up
0: Oh, man. I think that's um good. Right.
1: Thanks, everyone, for, for listening to another episode of Bro History. Um, if you like the show, you can rate and review the podcast. If you're listening on Apple, you can rate it. And then if you're listening on Spotify, it's a brand new feature where you can rate the podcast using your Spotify app. So please do that if you're listening on Spotify to uh, boost our review numbers or our uh, five-star numbers. And then, if you really want to support the show, um, you can also follow us on our Patreon. Uh, you can support us just up to a, for a dollar uh, a month. And uh, with um, joining our Patreon, you get access to our Slack account, where we are constantly talking and, and uh, sharing news stories and commenting on a lot of other stuff. Um, we have a lot of stuff on Russia Ukraine conflict um, on, on our on our Slack account. So uh, join us there to follow us uh, on on our Slack. And um anything else before we wrap this one up? No man. All right, peace everyone. Thanks for bearing uh bearing with me with my voice. <laughs>
2: peace. See ya.